This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Advanced voting in our municipal elections begins tomorrow, so it's a good time to look at some of the closer, more interesting races. Seven seats in Toronto are incumbent-free, some vacated by high-profile veteran councillors, some from the left, including Joe Cressy, Kristen Wong-Tam, and Mike Layton, to name a few. So uh, are those wide open, or is the NDP machine in full gear, even though municipal politics is nonpartisan? And on the other side of the spectrum, Mayor John Tory has stepped in to endorse candidates like former councillor John Burnside. Now, also interesting, there's big takeout in the star bemoaning what has become of the King Street Corridor, which, as everyone recalls, was supposed to make getting around King Street and the Entertainment District better for everyone. And uh, some interesting little wrinkles in some of the mayoral races. And now it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome... Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, and uh, we're waiting to get former Mayor David Crombie on the telephone. Uh, so let us begin with Karen. You're just back from a trip to London. So uh, what do you see when you look around the municipal landscape as a former councillor? Well, yeah, it's... Um you know, it, it's one of those uh, races where, you know, there's not a lot of interest and it's, um, it's unfortunate because there are a lot of issues. And uh, it's just one of those, you know, Tory's going to win. Everybody knows it. Um, but there's grumbling. I, I will tell you, uh, Libby, in my travels around and in my conversations with people, there is a, a, a grumbling about how the city is, is functioning or not functioning these days. And um, I think part of that frustration is that this mayoral outlet won't give people a real sense to voice that frustration. And there is just a, uh, a resignation that people feel. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, one of the things David Crombie always talks about is the basics, delivering the basics. To me, it feels a lot like the basics have fallen apart. And I just talked to the mayor on Monday and he said, no, this is just growing pains of a city that also put off a lot of uh, infrastructure correction and all of that, Lauren. I mean, eight years of growing pains it's been, and, and longer than that. Um, I, I don't know what the solution is, but the the race is a lot more interesting than I think people realize with so many, as you said, vacating councillors. Um, there are going to be a lot of new faces on city council, which could be a great thing. The problem is, I think, uh, as Karen said, that, that people just don't really care as much about this. Everyone is so convinced that Tory is just going to win anyways. Um, I mean, in my, in Spadina, Fort York, uh, Osma Malik is, is our, our candidate that's um, polling to win. And um, I barely know anything really about any of the other candidates. Uh, it's just, there's not a lot of... Um, platforming, I think, from what I've seen from councillors that people are paying attention to or that's getting enough visibility, whereas the mayoral candidates, we're knowing a lot about their platforms and kind of what they intend to do. Um, so uh, really, uh, is is it a matter that if uh, people are focused on the mayoral race, they're not having a look at what is happening in their own backyards? Because uh, we have races in the backyards. And, you know, at, at a very basic level, your counselor looks after, you know, what's happening on your street and your neighborhood and all of that, Karen. Yeah. And I, I will say that I have an incumbent counselor uh, seeking to return in my area, but you'd never know it. There's not a sign to be seen. There is not, I haven't had any literature at my door. I haven't had anybody come campaign in my area. So it's, it's kind of strange 
to be honest with you. And, um, and, and there are, uh, in the Young Eglinton area, no shortage of issues from the transportation to uh, the, the infrastructure to the orphaned projects to not being able to get parks fixed. To, like, there's a whole host of, of everyday issues that impact people's lives. And they're not getting addressed. And our council, I don't know where where that the incumbent is because they're not in the community. So, what, <laughs> so that's who is right. the incumbent? Councillor Mike Cole. Oh, uh, we talk to him a lot. He talks to us. I guess well, he isn't talking to you. <laughs> He's just not talking to the community. And uh, you know, and I drive through the city, and I don't. You just don't see a lot of campaign activity. And, uh, but, you know, as, as we were mentioning, there, there are some interesting races and there's certainly, you know, I don't think we're done the transit discussion. There is certainly concerns around the Edmonton Crosstown and the delays there. There's, you know, issues that we're going to talk about with respect to how King Street operates. There's issues with the fact that people aren't returning to transit and we've got increased congestion. There's, you know, issues around, uh, you know, how people are returning to work and how the city's functioning because the city hasn't actually required employees to come back into the office full time. But the, some of these city services require people to be in the office full time. And so how does all of that get managed? Uh, Lauren, I mean, sometimes it seems as it just doesn't get managed in that, in that <laughs> sense. But I think Karen's completely right. Like, I have not noticed such a lack of campaign materials at my door. I haven't had a single you know, candidate come to my house, nothing. And compared to what we've seen in federal and provincial elections, there are tons of flyers being distributed, lots and lots of signs. It just seems like, despite the fact that there are very many, you know, lots of issues to address in every neighborhood in the city, in every ward, the candidates aren't really getting out there the way they used to. And I think there's just a lot of apathy among voters in general. So maybe they feel like it's not worth it. But you know, like Karen said, there are some really important issues in every community that only councillors really are uniquely poised to address and bring up to council on behalf of their communities. And it's an important uh, important role, but people just kind of, I, I don't know. I don't see as much activity either. I'm not quite sure why. Hmm. Uh, do you think, Karen, that there is a lot of party activity? Not that I'm seeing. I'm not going to say, I mean, the NDP are so organized. They're hyper-organized. Like, they already know who's getting elected. I'm telling you, they're sitting there crafting the agenda for the next four years. And, um, because that's what they do well. Um, So, yes, I think that there probably is some NDP organization. You know, the the Conservatives and the Liberals haven't been able to muster that same level of organization from my perspective in in the other communities. And um, we know volunteers are kind of hard to come by uh, as well. And it, so there's, there's just a lot of things that, uh, you know, work against councillors running in such a large ward that they don't have party banners, they don't have affiliations. It's mainly name recognition. And, um, and you know, helping to get, getting a message out is, is, is very difficult in the noisy campaign like a municipal election. Uh, I wanted, speaking of campaign signs, and I want to touch on a couple of other elections here. Uh, and so, uh, if uh, on social media there was this, uh, unfortunate but amusing thing. So there is a woman running against Patrick Brown in Brampton named Nikki Core, and some very heavy duty political back rumors have gotten behind her. Uh, and she was a former employee who was let go. She refers to herself as a former employee, uh, turned whistleblower and she's running for mayor and she has this great big huge sign with the word Brampton misspelled. (laughs) (laughs) It is so like hilariously embarrassing, but you know, people are loving it because it's not all, not just one sign. It's all of her campaign materials. Apparently Um, it's Brampton B R A M T O N. And so People are saying, as Libby was saying earlier, like, Brampton needs more pee. That's literally what this sign needs. And I mean, not a great look for someone who is a lawyer and an activist and, and a former municipal employee to leave out a big letter in their own city's name. Not, not to mention those high profile backroom yeah. guys who, who are backing her. I see we have David Crombie. Hi, David. Hi, David. Liv, I'm sorry for the delay. Okay. <laughs> David, we're going to get your phone sorted out one of these days. Oh, man, I got to talk to Alexander Graham Bell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> I think you nailed it right there. So uh, advanced voting starts tomorrow, and uh, it, it really seems that because John Tory seems to be a, a shoe-in, uh, people are kind of snoozing it, even though, as you said, this is the level of government that most affects their lives. And People are annoyed about, you know, you always talk about the basics and people are annoyed. The basics are not getting done. No, it's, 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 I think we said earlier, probably the quietest election I can remember. Um, the issues are very strong. The needs are great. People are wanting things done and changed, but it's, it's somehow not clicking. But I, I, I offer this, and that is that when the election's over and you have a new council uh, across the uh, Ontario, and certainly in the greater Toronto area, I think you're going to find a sharpening of interest in the issues. And and, and they're obviously uh, right there before us. So uh, just because the election uh, is, is quiet, it does not mean that after the election, there isn't going to be a lot of activity because you have an activist uh, provincial government and an activist number of, of constituencies throughout the area. Uh, David, do you see a lot of kind of party activity. We saw uh, a number of very high-profile councillors on the left not running again. Uh, my, my brother thinks it's because they were afraid to run against John Tory uh, as mayor. No left challenger to John Tory. Um, do you see this? Is, is municipal politics is supposed to be nonpartisan. Do you see a big NDP machine versus, you know, John Tory has gone around endorsing more centrist candidates? Yeah, I, I don't see that, actually. Um, I, I, I think the change for a number of councillors who would, would ordinarily be contending the job for, for, the, for the job of mayor uh, decided they could not uh, beat John Tory, so they've, they've gone where, where they need to go elsewhere. Um, so I think that is the case, and I think there are, not, there are other people who, are, who maybe want to think about it or not ready for it. So that, that accounts for the mayoralty. Uh, and, and I and I think that that uh, what it does do, if I could say so, uh, is that it does give John Tory uh, and Toronto a real chance. And that real chance comes from the fact that this is a man who I think has a has an opportunity to create a, a legacy in a number of areas, uh, including housing in the city. And and I think he might want to go after that. This may be the reason why he's making sure he's got a majority on council. Hmm. Uh, and uh, about some of the other races, you know, uh, as you came on, we were chuckling about uh, this challenger to Patrick Brown in Brampton, who is backed by some heavy-duty political organizers and has a whole raft of campaign literature that misspells the word Brampton. <laughs> <laughs> That's certainly not helpful. Um, and I, 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 I don't know that. I, I don't know Patrick Brown particularly well, but but this man seems to survive in one way or another wherever he goes. Well, um, yes, so he's in and out of Brampton. He's in and out of leadership races. I have not followed it as closely as I should have, uh, but but it, uh, we'll, we see where it goes. I, I think that that um, people are are looking for change. They're not finding it so far, but as I mentioned earlier, I think they're going to sh- we're going to sharpen up the issues because we have an activist provincial government, and that action could be either good or bad, depending on your perspective. Right. And and speaking of some of the other mayoral races, so we have two failed provincial party leaders running for um, mayor, to be mayors. Uh, we have Stephen Del Duca, and we have Andrea Horvath in Hamilton. In Hamilton, right. Um, it, it's interesting. It's reversing the traditional approach and that is you go school board to council to province maybe the federal government um and so that's changing it but on the other hand it's a it, it, it could be a welcome thing these are two people um they're of different political parties but they have good experience both municipally uh and and provincially and so so it's it, and i i don't uh, i i i would i would welcome it i don't need a lot of them but we welcome some good experience with people who would like to do the right thing so I, I, that, is, that is interesting. But I think the other thing to mention, and that is that it, 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 despite whether it's a strong mayor or not strong mayor, the fact is councils make the difference, not just mayors. 
I know they're easy to, easier to cover one person rather than many, but it is the makeup of councils and the interaction on councils that are really important. And I think paying attention to those, you'd come up with a happier story. There's some very interesting people running, I know, in a number of ridings across the greater Toronto area. They're interesting people, young people who've got something to say. So I would pay attention as much to the councillors as I do to the mayors. Karen, what do you make of two former provincial leaders running to be mayors, especially in the context of an activist, Queen's Park? Doug Ford, is uh, he's, he's uh, you know, large and in charge when it comes yeah. to any kind of municipal affairs. Yeah, you know, I think that that's just the political bug has bitten those individuals and they feel like they need to make a contribution and it wasn't where they thought it was going to be. I'm kind of surprised, to be honest with you, because, I mean, Stephen Del Duca didn't even win his riding. So I don't know why he would be inspired to try to seek the mayoral. Um, and for Andrea Horvath, I mean, she's been at the provincial level for several years. And, you know, I think being a mayor can be very interesting and you can do a lot of good and it's a, it's a fun job. And so maybe she thinks it's a good way for her to leverage what she's learned and the relationship she's built for the benefit of Hamilton. Um, but it, to be honest with you, it does seem like a step down. Uh, I, I I remember Karen that that you ran for mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fun job. <laughs> it can is be. it? It can be. I mean, I remember watching John Tory when he was in the pit outside the Raptors games and you know jumping up and down and <laughs> you know he gets to be the ambassador for the city and he gets to go and do fun things and meet nice like great people and you know he gets to cut the ribbon on fun projects. So there's a lot of aspects to to being the mayor that. It's quite a bit of fun, as I'm sure David would attest to. David? <laughs> well, no. Fun was not a word I would have used, but is it very, very interesting, and it mm-hmm. keeps you alert, and it keeps you awake, and it allows you to, to make a contribution, which is not easy to make at the other two levels. So mm-hmm. I think there's a reason why people like to be mayor and parents, right? It can be very, very interesting, and particularly because we have a nonpartisan um, uh, technically, a, a nonpartisan approach to local government. I think it makes it even more interesting and less predictable. Well, and, and and speaking of some of those fun things, out the corner of my eye, I can't remember. Probably in the last week, I saw John Tory participating in a Bhangra dancing class. Oh my god! So John Tory, like Karen, is completely right. John Tory makes being a mayor look so much fun. It's not just the Bhangra dancing class. I, I mean, ahead of Carabana this year or the Toronto Caribbean Carnival, he was dancing in Nathan Phillips Square for the cameras, doing some soca. He and as Karen said, no I'm, offense, dancing like a white guy. I mean, yeah, I, I, no he, offense. He is. He is an older white guy, but. I mean, Drake also is dances like an old white dad, and he's not an old white guy. So, I mean, to be fair, um, and, and like when Karen was saying he was outside the Raptors games, like Tori was wearing a custom made Toronto Raptors suit. He's like he he does a lot of really fun things. He gets to go and you know just kind of act like I think that's why people just default kind of like him so much without knowing much about his politics because he's like Toronto's dad you know he's this dorky old guy who can go out and dance and wear a fun raptor suit and and that's kind of the vibe he brings so I definitely think he makes being a mayor look like a lot of fun well he definitely shows up for things that are important to people I think that's a part of it um uh you know, he's going to be here next week for a debate, Lauren. Oh. Um, should I tell him you called him a dorky old old guy? I mean, I tell him I <laughs> meant it in a positive way. way. In um, the nicest possible way. Yeah, the nicest way. possible way, but totally. I think it's part of his appeal. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the other mayors, I was reading a story uh, about some of the other mayors, and uh, including Rob Burton of Oakville, that in total they've had, you know... Um, 75 years in office or something. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to compete with that kind of experience, but I think that we do have some mayoral candidates here with great ideas coming forward. It's just, uh, yeah. It's, 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 it, I don't know. um, I, I, you know, regard it as part of our mission to get people interested in municipal politics, but, you know, it seems like you could be a pet rock if you're an incumbent, you're going to get in. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if there's no one running against you, especially, or no one really of any significant kind of publicity or standing, 
I don't know what. Yeah, I think it is. It is, however, worth I think pointing out that the, the municipal electorates are usually more, far more informed and far more involved in the issues of the day than either provincially or federally. Yeah, and it's going to be a very small number of people that elect our next mayors and councillors. And uh, I dare say a lot of them will be Zoomers. So audience out there, you have a lot of clout. It's going to be... Absolutely. This is is a new chapter in in an old book, and, and, and they should take advantage of it. Well, yeah, if normally provincial turnouts are in the 30s, and this is the lowest one, uh, how low is it going to go? And what percentage of that low percentage do you need? Uh, you know, the the math is pretty, uh, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> Advantageous for the incumbent. Well, yes, <laughs> that for sure. Advantageous for the incumbent. Let's talk about the King Street Corridor. Uh, interesting story in the Star today talking about how it's degraded and the uh, infrastructure for it was never meant to be permanent and nobody is enforcing it so that uh, cars are still doing what they want, which is not turning right after one block. Lauren? I mean, I have a really close personal connection with this as a longtime resident of Liberty Village, not anymore, but at the time when they implemented the King Street pilot project in 2017, it was supposed to be this miraculous thing um, that would, you know, effectively allow us to stop waiting in the cold for 45 minutes to an hour every morning as streetcar past streetcar past streetcar went by filled with people. Um, It was meant to stop all of those constant backups of streetcars, the delays, because, you know, when it works, it it works. But the problem now, uh, they made it permanent in 2019. I still think it's a great idea, but if, if they're not enforcing the rules, then it absolutely doesn't work, right? So they're supposed to either go straight or um, or they can't go straight or turn. And at certain points, I think a lot of people from out of town are confused about the rules when they see the signs, like, what? And, and people are just doing what they want to anyways. I see it every day on my bike, all the time. Uh, the no turning thing, people are turning anyways. Um, I think at the I, beginning- I have to say, the last time I had to go, I have or had a dentist down there go from work. So I'm in a car and I had a whole uh, route mapped out. And guess what? The one street I was going to go on was closed for construction. And literally it was a situation where you can't get there from here. And I had to make an illegal turn. I did not get caught. Oh, well, but I, I also did not go back. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people don't get caught. And, and it's funny right now at King and Portland, there's actually, you know, there are the King Street Corridor signs that say you can't go straight, you can't turn left. But then construction to the right is blocking it off. So there's another sign that says you can't go right. So <laughs> I stood there one day for work filming cars to see what they would do. And, and you know, half went straight, half went right. Nobody, like, they don't know what to do. It's well, just what like, are you going to do? Exactly. It's like, well, I'm danged if you do, you're danged if you don't. David, this chaos it's everywhere it's it's not just on the king street corridor i mean what do you make of it well it is everywhere the king street corridor was a a very specific uh, trial to try and do something about that about the congestion um and it, it was a good idea but like a lot of good ideas i think these days even more so um there, there's not much follow-through. There's not an intention that somehow, after you've cut the ribbon, there's work to be done. And that work to be done is, is, needs to be constant. and needs to be in a time frame that the public understands. No one really understood what they meant by temporary. Temporary wasn't just going to be forever, and, but no one knew what, what that was supposed to be. So I think they need to re, reconfigure the, the project and make sure that they, the public understands what the time frame is, what the conditions are. They're now offering reasons why it's delayed, um, and, and which, were, which were certainly forecastable, if that's the word, uh, before, but people didn't bother worrying about it at, at City Hall. Somehow the public needs to be informed. It seemed to me uh, that, that what's, what's probably worse about it is that if you're going to make it temporary and temporary longer, then you should at least be looking after it. You should at least be maintaining it. It's ugly. I, I lived at the other end of, of Liberty when that started, uh, over, over by St. Lawrence Market. Uh, and I would take that King Street car. And, and at, at the beginning, at least it, it was a bit shiny, but today it's shabby. It's just shabby. 
And I think it's been a shabby project because it's been shabby attention paid to deliverability and making sure that you're carrying out the maintenance that's required. Well, yeah, and Karen, now they say, well, they're they're going to fix it up in concert with all the other projects in the area. Like, excuse me, uh, yeah, that's, that's never right. Well, you know, and I think that there's, you know, sort of the unintended consequences of a lot of things are coming to play. Now, one being that transit ridership continues to be lower than, um, you know, because of the pandemic, it hasn't bounced back. It's going to take some time before it does. More people are in cars getting around because they need to continue to get around. And um, there, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't, you know, making a pilot project permanent isn't, isn't the end. As David was saying, like, you still need to do work to make sure that whatever you're making permanent is supported by the right infrastructure. And so, and there's a general sense of frustration in the city about trying to get around because there are so many restrictions or lane blockages or construction and, it, it does create, to your point, chaos in terms of how you get around until finally you're like, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna, I, I just have to go this way because I don't know, I don't know how else to get there. <laughs> you end up going the wrong way, but it's the only way you have. Yeah. And and as more and more of that happens and people's frustrations build and build and build, that's when you have a really difficult and dangerous scenario in the city. And I, I actually believe we're not far from that. Okay. Uh- we're just about out of time, so I want to go around the table, and I want you guys to tell me, am I overly complaining and pessimistic? So I was talking to Mayor Tory, as I said, on Monday, and he said, all of this is just a function of a growing city that has delayed some things. To me, it looks like Toronto's kind of given up. And everybody just does what they want. So is he right? Or am I right? Or is David? Well, um, I'm not sure who's right. I mean, I, it's, uh, it's enough to exasperate you. Uh, uh, but, I, uh, but I think John Tory's right. It, it is partly the functioning of a successful city. Um, if you want to go to unsuccessful cities, it's not, not difficult to get around. Um, so it is a function of a city that's succeeding. But, but take roads. I mean, we're now got roads. They're used in such a way that was not true a generation ago. I mean, you got every possible form of conveyance from from boards to tricycles to power driven scooters to I mean, this whole idea of complete streets, as the planners call it. It, it. It's part of the chaos because people have got different ways and different modes of now moving on. It's it's partly uh, trying to adjust affordability, but the fact of the matter is we're going to be uh, stuck with. Or we're going to have um, a very busy streets with different modes of transportation on them, and trying to figure out how they mesh will always be difficult. Karen, what do you think? Uh, I'm with you, uh, Libby. I, I think that John, um, you know, he has to say what he has to say because he's got to defend what's happening in the city. But I think it will be to his detri- detriment if he doesn't actually start paying attention to people's experience of living in the city, because getting around is increasingly difficult. And it's having an impact on people's day-to-day lives in a way that they are expressing. And uh, and, and to just to be told, oh, well, it is what it is, I, I don't think that's going to fly. Lauren? Uh, Karen's right. It's not going to fly. And I'm seeing it among more and more people my age um, that people are just leaving Toronto or considering, strongly considering leaving the city. Uh, just an example, you know, I have a, a great bike route, about seven minutes if I hit all the lights right from my home. Oh, good to luck with office. that. Yeah. I mean, but some days I can do it. Now I tried to get today and all of a sudden, oh, well, King and Shaw completely closed off. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to go through the back. There's a back alley in Cam Age. <laughs> oh, I get to the end of it. Construction there too. It took me almost 35 minutes yeah. to get to work on a bike. Uh, I mean, I could have walked in faster time. It's just, it's so frustrating and and i feel like every time i'm commuting you just arrive angry because you're like oh yes. so you know t- whether you're driving whether by transit or whether by cycle or, or even walking it's just so frustrating and it's turning a lot of people away from the city hmm. and as usual david crombie is the most optimistic <laughs> and forward-looking of all of us thank you panel thanks so much karen stints david crombie and lauren o'neill we'll talk again soon yes, thank thanks you so thank you We're going to take a break, and when we come back, things we should be thankful for. Okay, maybe the traffic isn't on that list, but we'll talk about it as we head into Thanksgiving. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. What are you grateful for? It's time to think about that with Thanksgiving weekend almost upon us. Now, psychologists say that practicing gratitude in a very deliberate way will make us happier. But with the mental toll that the pandemic and subsequently the economy has taken over the last few years, is it challenging for people to feel grateful? I'd like to hear from you. Do you ever take the time to actually list the things that you're grateful for? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And, you know, if you don't do it on a regular basis, this is a good time for it anyway. Uh, right now, let's go to Dr. Brent Mulrooney, a clinical psychologist and director of the Center for Interpersonal Relationships in Toronto and Dr. Stephen Taylor, a professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia and the author of The Psychology of Pandemics. Well, thank you both for joining us. I'm grateful for that. Hello. Hi there. Thanks, Libby. Thanks a lot. So what are the benefits to our, we hear a lot about mental health these days, people's mental health has suffered a lot. What are the mental health benefits of uh, practicing gratitude, as it's called, Dr. Taylor? Well, um, I should start off with some people get hung up about the word gratitude. Um, and so uh, I, I, you know, if, if gratitude is a word you're having difficulty with, try silver linings or, or you know, things like that. Um, there are lots of things, and there's a phenomenon called post-traumatic growth, and we've been um, evaluating people during the pandemic, and we found uh, many people found things to be, if you like, grateful for, or ways or positive ways that they've changed. So there are lots of things, like um, coming to value the little things, like not having to wear a mask on a bus, or being able to go to restaurants, or valuing friends and family, or for some people it's been deepening spiritual growth. So there are lots of things to be grateful for or silver linings during stresses like a pandemic. Uh, Dr. Mulrooney, uh, what have you found in your practice? Yeah, so for gratitude, I'm going to echo Dr. Taylor here and say that like, we need to think a little bit about how we're looking at gratitude. Generally, are we looking at that as like something that we're trying to uh, you know, find silver linings, or are we trying to just pay attention to like the small moments and the beautiful things that we can see throughout the throughout the days, throughout the week, and in interaction with someone? Because after the course of the pandemic, which I think has been a big uh, stressor for just about everyone, finding those little moments, finding those little pieces of joy, can be quite helpful and can help us actually see. Again, like Dr. Taylor said, some of the ways that we've changed and grown over time. Yeah, and a lot of people are finding the, uh, quote, re-entry difficult. I mean, I, I was just talking to my municipal panel. We were talking about how hard it is to get around the city, and a lot of people haven't quite done it for a few years. And I guess the thing is that you can get uh, caught up in the, you know, small uh, but cumulative stressors of just getting through a day. Dr. Taylor. Yeah, absolutely right. And um, it's when, when people think about stresses, they usually think about the big things. But as you say, it's the small cumulative ones that are important for many people in their lives that can wear them down, which can lead to problems with burnout at their jobs or, or depression. So even the smaller stresses are an important factor. And I think people are experiencing... A new flavor of stressor is they um, uh, return to work and so they're no longer dealing with, with whatever particular challenges they might have been experiencing at home. For example, some people, uh, and now you're getting back to work and you're dealing with other stresses like crowds on buses and so forth. Yeah, and and uh, I, I think also for a lot of people, if they only had very constrained interactions, like you had that Zoom call and maybe you met up with one friend, uh, but is actually interacting with people kind of all day long, is, is that hard for people, Dr. Mulrooney? It certainly is. And I think that depends a lot on the person's 
own experience of the pandemic as well. So some people, uh, you know, really found it difficult not having the social connection throughout the pandemic, uh, while others actually found it a little bit of a reprieve. And now they're finding kind of that reentry, as you speak about it, uh, quite difficult as well. And so, you know, kind of linking this back into our gratitude conversation, being aware of what things have changed, what things are better, what things are worse is a part of our therapeutic perspective at the Center for Interpersonal Relationships to be able to look at how do we actually notice what's not going so well and how can we address that? But how do we also not forget the things that are going well that we can be grateful for, like uh, the fact that we're we're all here to talk about this now today when two years ago we were a little bit worried about that. Yeah, Uh, I think that's a a good note for us to take a break. We'll be back with more of this. And I also want to talk about this thing about keeping a gratitude journal. Does that really help? And and it is Thanksgiving weekend. And, you know, is that uh, having a holiday like that a good time to kind of focus on the positive things. Before we go to break, I'd like to give the numbers out again. And people, I would like to hear from you. Uh, what are you grateful for? Are you thinking about it this time of year? Uh, are you uh, happy that you will be in some kind of gathering maybe over this Thanksgiving weekend? Let me know what's up for you. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744. 740, and we will be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about practicing gratitude. After all, it is the thanks weekend, the Thanksgiving weekend this weekend. It's a good time to think about that. And Psychologists tell us that if we practice gratitude, we will be happier. Uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And let's begin with Midge in Scarborough. Hi, Midge. Hi, Midge. How are you, Libby? I'm fine. <laughs> Go ahead. You're on the air. Love your show. Thank you. Uh, attitude of gratitude actually changed my life. And I don't mean to sound preachy, but I found it by simply uh, appreciating really basic things. It started prior to the pandemic when I my leg was saved, but it continued. And even during the pandemic, I know that it was a rough time, but when I acknowledged people for what they did and, and said genuine thank yous when they were there, I saw so much good and I continue to see good. The gratitude and genuine appreciation that you give to someone during the day, I find it's almost like they're in shock that they're getting it and that they had an impact on you. I see it 9.5 times out of 10, and it's very genuine. Attitude of gratitude has changed my life. It has lifted it up. Everything is brighter. Um, things are more, uh, I'm more in the moment. And I found that the more I'm like this, the more it seems to attract. And my attitude is not what I have, what I don't have, but it's what I have. It's not what I can't do, but it's what I do. And it's so transformational. Um, I, again, I don't mean to sound preachy. I don't write it down, but I'm very aware of what we have in this country. And I'm blessed with two hands and two legs. And uh, a body, and I just think that's the best. Getting that out is of bed. that is the best. Thank you so much for sharing that, and uh, it's very nice to hear. Let's go to Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Hello. I thank God every day for what I have living in this country and with the freedom that we have, and especially really at home last week when that poor girl died in prison because she didn't wear the jab properly. Come on, really. Yeah, it's terrible to look around and see what's happening in other parts of the world. Uh, Barry, thank you very much. country that gives us lots of opportunities and advantages that others don't have, and I think sometimes we take it for granted just a little bit too much. Uh, I think you're right. Thank you, Barry. So uh, there you have two people who uh, are thankful for what we have here in this country. Dr. Mulrooney, do do we take things for granted too much here? 
think that really depends on um, each individual person. There's a lot of people who will come into our practice and will say, hey, how do I actually make my life better? How do I change things? And a lot of the time when they come in, they're looking to notice what's going on with themselves, what's going on with other people, and how that's actually good and how that's something that they can pay more attention to and how they can like look a little bit more on the bright side. So I think there's people that are interested in, in doing that right from the beginning versus other times it's, it's difficult for people to see the, the brighter side of things. And maybe that has a lot to do with what their recent experiences have been. And it takes a little while to walk us there. Dr. Taylor, uh, there's a whole thing about keeping a gratitude journal. Uh, is that important? Uh, it's a useful tool. I mean, there are lots of ways of coping, and a gratitude journal is useful for a couple of reasons. One, it can teach you something about yourself. Um, we touched on taking things for granted before. Humans are like that. We adapt to things. We adapt to stresses. We adapt, we adapt to the luxuries in our lives, and we can take them for granted. So a journal can help you realize, do I take things for granted that I really should be savoring? The other thing a journal is useful for is some people, particularly people who have trouble, struggle with depression, tend to over-focus on the negatives in their lives. And they don't realize that there are positives because they don't pay attention to them. So a gratitude journal can help there as well. That's interesting that it's uh, a matter of what you focus on. Uh, Dr. Mulroney, do you find that as well? Is it can, can just shifting focus a little bit, is, is that easy or hard? I mean, it can be harder than it, than it sounds a lot of the time, but I'm going to agree with Dr. Taylor here. That's been something that's been shown in our research literature for a long time. When individuals have depression, they tend to overemphasize the negatives in their life. And one of the ways that we'll work with that is actually to work on perspective shifting and a gratitude journal or thinking about what we're grateful for can be one of many different tools that we can use to bring someone back into a a more positive experience of their own life. Okay, let's take a call from Angela in Etobicoke. Hello, Angela. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to uh, share how I use my gratitude list every day. Um, every morning, I go through my intentions, which I've set for the year. I have three yearly intentions. So I go over those, and then I have a biweekly intention that I set every two weeks, and I go over that. And then I have a gratitude list, and it has about 50 items on it. And I go through each item saying I'm grateful for, and then I repeat the item that's on the list. And I do add items to my gratitude list periodically. And I find that this has been really helpful to me, having that gratitude list and reviewing it every day, keeping it in my mind. It sounds like you're uh, very organized with that. Uh, good for you. Thanks, Angela, for your call. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that also sounds like uh, it, it's it's probably pretty time-consuming. Dr. Taylor, like how much time should you spend doing this? I guess it really depends on the person in the sit- and the situation. If you're clinically depressed and you're seeing a psychologist, for example, and you're working on uh, increasing gratitude, then you might be spending more time on that. For, for other people, they might find it's just something that they regularly check in on themselves. For example... Am I appreciating the the sunrise or am I appreciating the the meals that I have, focusing on the little things? So it very much depends on the person. But I would encourage people to give it a try anyway, even if you are skeptical. um, Try a little bit of gratitude um, journaling. It need not be a lot of time. You might find it's beneficial for you. Uh, Dr. Mulrooney, do you agree? Yeah, I'd agree. When clients come in, one of the first things that we say is, Let's spend five minutes on this. Let's spend the walk home on thinking about what might be positive for us, because sometimes those little steps can make very large differences. Uh, What about differentiating? Um, You know, there are little things that are the stressors in daily life. 
and uh, they're not the same as big things that go bad, but you can, you know, you can get caught up on how hard it is to get around and uh, whatever else happened, but um, not necessarily, I guess, be depressed about it. Absolutely, and I think gratitude is part of it, if I can jump in there, but it might not be enough. You might need to build up resilience or build up your stress tolerance to deal with the, the maybe everyday minor, but, but real in their impact stresses. So it's, it's one component of, a, I guess, a mental health package, being grateful for things. Mm-hmm. Um, what else would you advise people? I mean, it, it is Thanksgiving, uh, you know, people, uh, what would you tell them? Because there's also expectations around this, Dr. Mulroney. Right. Well, one of the things that I, I thought about as we were talking about the idea of gratitude was the difference between gratitude for what we have versus, and I, I know this is coming up with Thanksgiving and a lot of people are getting back into family connections and not having seen people for a while and things like that. I want to differentiate having gratitude with telling others that they should be grateful ah. because that's something that we will see fairly often in our practice as well. And we need to be really careful not to confuse gratitude for what we have with expectations that other people are grateful for what we do. So we need to like actually think about one of those things is about building up the positive in our life. The other one can be a way to actually let us know we're in a little bit of distress if that's something that's coming up for us. And, and it might be a time to reflect and, and think about uh, something like seeking some help or seeking some therapy. Uh, can you expand on that? I'm not sure I completely understand what you mean. Sure. That, uh, that you shouldn't tell others to be gratitude, to be grateful for you or what? Well, so when we find ourselves... And, you know, if it's a one-off thing, that's, that's totally okay. But if we're at a Thanksgiving dinner, for example, and we're thinking to ourselves, oh, they're not grateful or they should be grateful for everything that I've done, that's a really good indication that we're feeling something that we're not quite aware of at that point. So it might be something like, actually, I'm feeling pretty sad or pretty hurt when people aren't appreciating all the work that I put into this weekend. And I know that that's a pretty vulnerable thing to say, but it's also something that's powerful and helps us kind of differentiate our own feelings, which might be, hey, I'm kind of hurt here, as opposed to the gratitude that we've been talking about so far on the uh, on the show. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Shelly in Thornhill. Hello, Shelly. Hello. How are you, Libby? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So I want to talk about something my uh, daughter did when my grandson was young, um, and they continued for a couple of years. Uh, when the family sat down for dinner, which they did every night, to promote conversation, um, and even when guests were there, they had a jar, and in the jar were all these questions and comments, and they pulled one out each time they got together. And they would answer them. And I remember some of them were about what are you, what made you happy today? What was the best thing that happened this week? Um, who did you talk to that you hadn't talked to before? And these were all things to um, promote their family vision of kindness and caring and helping others and getting along. And um, I think it's a marvelous idea, and I wanted to share it. Okay, thank you for that, Shelley. You're welcome. That's fantastic. Yeah, start them young. So, uh, again, um, as we head into this weekend, people kind of have to, uh, they don't have to be grateful, but they have to have a, a kind of uh, take their own temperature in terms of their feelings and take note if perhaps their feelings aren't all that positive, right? Absolutely, I agree with you. It's good to check in with yourself, and if there's an upcoming social event, then Thanksgiving can be stressful for people. Um, problem solve around it. Try and anticipate problems that could come up. 
Uh, and uh, that's just getting together with family after a long time or managing a big event at your house. Or I think this year, even the cost of it is a problem for a lot of people. Absolutely. So it, it's, I mean, it's stressful uh, in the best of times, but uh, Thanksgiving can be. Uh, sorry, we're losing you. I, I was just saying that, yes, um, it's well known that Thanksgiving giving is is stressful for all kinds of reasons, even at the best of times pre-pandemic. And and now, of course, there are added stresses. So cut yourself some slack if you're feeling uh, overwhelmed about preparations and so forth. Yeah. Um, I... uh, I I, we weren't going to be in town. Normally I cook a turkey. I cook all the time. And I thought this year, so we're having some people over. I'm not cooking a turkey. <laughs> it's very time consuming and, and timing with all the other stuff. And it's like, we're going to have something non-traditional. Not good for you. That sounds like a way of being kind to yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm just looking at the time. It's time to wrap things up. Um, what would you like to leave us with Dr. Mulrooney? Sure. Um, I'm actually going to say something similar to what Dr. Taylor said a few minutes ago. I think before any big gathering, we really need to sit down and think about what we're going to likely feel, what's going to be positive that we're going to look toward, what's going to be negative that we're going to look toward. Knowing that in advance can help reduce our anxiety And it also gives us time to prepare our own support networks and say, hey, this might be difficult this weekend. So I've got, uh, you know, these two good friends to rely on. That can make all the difference. And Dr. Taylor, last word to you. Yeah, I'm going to follow up on something a previous caller um, mentioned. I think her name was Mitch. She said uh, that gratitude is more, I'm paraphrasing, but gratitude is contagious. And I think that's a good way of uh, a good thing. So um, if we're more gra- grateful or express our gratitude to other people, there, there will be uh, some payback, beneficial payback for people. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen Taylor and Dr. Brent Mulrooney. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. Bye now. Uh, that's all the time we have. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. And, you know, we can continue this conversation. I noted that uh, there were a lot of people calling in and, and wanting to talk about what they were grateful for and what they were looking forward to. So we can continue the conversation tomorrow on Free for All Friday. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.